Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Good morning. Welcome to Jazz Shapers. It's me, Elliot Moss, here where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm very pleased to say, is Ravinda Bogle, chef, journalist and founder of Giacconi, a London restaurant celebrating mixed heritage cooking. Go look at the menu. We're going to be talking about that very shortly. Born in Kenya to Indian parents, where Ravinda's chaotic extended family would all get involved in mealtimes, Ravinda was, as she says, seduced by food. Age seven, her family moved abruptly to London, where she felt alienated, bullied at school for her foreign accent. Nostalgia for Nairobi led her to spend time with her mother in the sanctuary of the kitchen, where she made peace, she says, with her new nation. Working as a beauty fashion journalist, Ravinda was encouraged to enter and won a TV cooking competition, Gordon Ramsay's The F Word. TV presenting followed alongside creating her own dishes in food pop-ups. But it wasn't until a food critic said, stop being a coward. When will you commit to a space of your own that the seed was sown? In 2016, Ravinda opened Jikoni, meaning kitchen in Kiswahili, with food inspired by the rich shared culinary heritage, flavours and cultures across parts of Asia, the Middle East, East Africa and Britain. As she says, at Jikoni, we're about pluralism and diversity and truly believe that what makes Britain great is immigration. Our food is the food of immigrants, people who ache for what they left behind. When you reconcile this with their new landscape, you're creating a new world cuisine. Hello. Hello. Thank, thank you so much for coming. Thank it's you for having me. Lovely to meet you. Tell me the number one passion. If you had to, you only had one trick that came out of the hat, what would come out first? I think it would be the words, journalist. I mean, food is is connected to that anyway. I, 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 it's so hard to choose, really. You've put me on the spot now, but... You know, I'm I'm proud of all the slashes. <laughs> I have. Um, you know, I am I am all of those things. It's all of those things that make me up, really. And when did the passion for words start? Do you remember? I'd always loved words. Um, when I was growing up, my father was deeply poetic. He wasn't really allowed to be poetic. There wasn't space for men to be poetic back then. But he loved our language, Punjabi. And so he introduced us very early on to the great Punjabi poets, people like Shiv Kumar Batalvi. And I remember being aged five and, and sort of reciting and learning these really complex love poems. And I think that was when I first fell in love with words. But then when I came to this country age seven, I was very, very lonely and, you know, feeling very alienated, new country, completely different landscape. And you know, my parents were going through the stresses of, you know, finding or navigating their way through starting over in a new country. And I think lonely children are often very empathetic to the needs of adults and you kind of learn to make yourself invisible. And the way I felt I could be invisible was dis by disappearing to the public library. And I just found it incredible for a child with very few resources that you could go to a library and take books home for free. That just blew my mind. And I was just an avid reader and I was there every day. So I remember there was this thing called the Bookworm Club where over six weeks you were set six reading books. And I think over six weeks I read like six times that amount because I just read a book a day. It was what I did. And so, yeah, fell in love with words then. 
so so you said you came here um and you felt alienated you felt lonely which is natural were there any other children in the playground that were like you that had anything similar in terms of experience no they were weren't actually i went to a very white school but also the 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 few um you know children who weren't white had been born in this country so they all spoke the same they all sounded the same and i didn't and you know i remember being very embarrassed uh, when people sort of corrected how i spoke english because i thought i was very good at english in kenya we, we went to school and you're taught what they call the queen's english and your handwriting and academically you know it was tougher in kenya so when i came here i could already read and write very well i was already on my 12 times table and you know in my classroom people were still sort of coloring in and writing you know dotted things uh, handwriting in pencil i was already on to pen um but i just found it really deeply embarrassing when you know teachers would correct me and and sort of ask me to read aloud and then correct my accent and say you have a very lazy way of speaking you need to speak english correctly and yeah that was that was difficult as if it was some sort of um you know kind of uh, benevolent act uh, exercising my accent it's really funny there's a great irony in this isn't there of course because if anyone's listening they'll go well she does speak the queen's english i mean <laughs> probably better than most people that were born in england i mean truthfully and having lived in india and having experienced um the way that english is taught it's often far more proper and yeah. far far more interesting words and vocabulary and, and all those other things so first ambition in terms of work was it also the writing was that where life started for you in terms of earning a buck i think yeah i'd always aspired to write even at school writing short stories and things like that i didn't really know what i wanted to be i think that came from not really having role models so my father was an aeronautical engineer my mother was a housewife and my father was it came from a very sort of patriarchal culture where I was daughter number 4 so I was just told well you'll just grow up and you'll get married and my mother always said to me you will learn to cook and you'll learn to clean and you'll cook for your husband and your children and that is your parameter and you don't go beyond that and I had watched my sisters who were much older than me so my elder sister is 16 years older than me get married age 19 um and sort of not really fulfill their potential educationally and being the fourth one i suppose i was the one who got away because i just suddenly found myself in england in a very different world with different opportunities and you know watching television and watching people like nigella lawson and madhur jafri who looked like me and thinking this doesn't have to be about joining some sort of domestic cult you know it doesn't have to be a drudgery you can actually do this and get paid to do it and it was it blew my mind and i think it inspired me very very early on and especially someone like nigella because she wasn't just a cook she was a writer she's really bright you know her her writing i I remember saying this to her recently over Twitter because she was very nice about my book and I said I remember buying how to eat. I was a shop girl at Selfridges and I saved up some money and I went to the Selfridges bookshop and purchased how to eat and I read it on those long train journeys home from Kent to 
to London and it was like someone had opened a window and air and light had just come in. And I think that's how inspiration strikes. And I was, you know, 18 years old or whatever, but I think that was the first point of inspiration for me, that food could be written about so evocatively, so beautifully. The, the picture you paint of young woman from Kenya with Indian heritage. Yeah. And the fact that you were daughter number four, and as you said, the parameters were set. Breaking through from that, you studied law. I know you didn't like law particularly, but you went to university. That's a pretty big thing in the family. I mean, you broke the mold. Yeah. Have you been breaking the mold ever since? Is that is that sort of uh, habitual? Is it addictive to break the mold? I think I've inherited my grandfather's genes. He was quite a pioneer. You know, he left India in the 1940s. He was living in provincial Punjab. There was nothing. And him and his brother decided to run away, go to Bombay and seek out better opportunities. And they landed up in Bombay. And the story that my father told me is that they got on a ship because there was work being advertised in Kenya and um, sailed for something like 26 days, at which point they ended up back in Bombay because something had actually gone wrong with the ship. And he's brought, I mean, I can imagine horrific, you know, starvation, all those kinds of things were, were going on. And his brother said, I'll never do that again. Yet he, a month later, you know, got back on that ship and sailed out. And landed up in Mombasa, fell so deeply in love with the kind of really benevolent alluvial earth, this red earth, and just decided to lay down our roots. And he was on his own. And, you know, he really struggled from what I have heard. You know, he was tricked in business. He was sold land that was infertile. He made it blossom. He was a real sort of rebel in a way because he just did it. He didn't care. And he beat his own path. And I think that spirit is very much alive in me. That, I mean, that is the immigrant spirit as well, isn't it? Yes. It is the, I'm going to go and I'm going to see what happens because whatever I'm going to find has got to be better than where I've been, Yeah. essentially. Tell me, though, the, the movement from you, you start writing, you get your bit of a break with the Gordon Ramsay show, which was yeah. now 13 years ago or so. Yeah. And you're still so young within <laughs> he quickly adds before she gives me the ghastly stare. Um, and then you meet Jay Rayner and you start doing stuff with him. Tell me a little bit about how he helped you think about cooking seriously. So I was doing a show for Channel 4 with a terrible title. It was called Food, What Goes in Your Basket? And it was a six-part series, and I was the sort of roving reporter, and I'd go off and I'd go to all parts of the world and, and talk about the politics of food. And then I'd come back and I'd cook in the studio, and that's where... Jay would sort of be my co-host and he's like a mouth on legs, you know, just loves food. And um, he just one day said to me, have you ever thought about learning the trade of restaurants and, and going and working in a restaurant because your food is really good and more people should taste it? And I just took it very, very seriously. And he's he surprised even that I took him so seriously. But I think when you haven't had mentors, you're always looking for someone to mentor you. You're always looking for someone to give you advice, to sort of show you the way. And my self-belief really came from people like that telling me, 
you can. I never believed it of myself until someone saw it in me or saw that potential in me and told me. And so I did. I just went and started doing stages and working in people's restaurants. And I found it really tough, really, really hard. And then at the same time, I the, the whole supper club and pop-up scene was taking off. And I was offered a takeover of a night uh, run by a chef called Anna Hansen, another wonderful woman and chef. And she just said, just do this. And I said, there is no way I've never cooked for more than 20 people. And this was like 90 covers. And she said, no, I believe in you. You can do it. Just do it. Your food is delicious. You'll be able to do it. You'll get it. It's practical. You know, once you're you're there, you'll figure it out. And I did it and it was such an electric night and so many incredible people turned up and the response to the food was incredible. You know, everything I'd put into the food, people could taste, which was incredible. And at that point then, there was someone from Selfridges who said, oh, well, why don't you come and do a pop-up at Selfridges? And I suddenly felt that I was on this conveyor belt one after the other, and I couldn't quite get off. And then in between that, I started getting approaches from chefs mainly to do private catering for them. So I ended up cooking for people like Bruno Lube in his home and Brett from the Ledbury, who, I mean, I still can't believe I cooked for, you know, I did his birthday party. And just to to get that was it was incredible. And then, yeah, I'd been doing this sort of six-week run and there'd been a food critic who'd been coming to quite a few of my things. And she just took me aside and said, well, when are you going to stop being such a coward and find a space of your own? And it was in that kind of Virginia Woolf-esque mood, you know, and it just, that spoke to me. And I had been approached six years before by an investor who'd said, let's do this. And I'd spent six years saying no to him. And finally, I had birthed the idea of Giacconi, my philosophy, the menu, the culture I wanted in my restaurant. And I was ready. And then I spent two years looking for a site because there were no sites available. And I only wanted to open in Marylebone. So not fussy at all. No. <laughs> it's not, fussy, no, it's not, 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 not precise. Um, stay with me to find out what happened in the next chapter of this beautifully written book. I feel like I'm reading a book as you speak. You do, you do speak beautifully. Um, but this book about Giacconi and Giacconi is coming up in the next part of Jazz Shapers because Ravinda Bogle will still be with me telling me all about it. Right now, we're going to hear a taster from the Michigan Academy digital sessions, which can be found on all the major podcast platforms, as I hope you know. Mishkan Derez, Victoria Piggott, and Dr. Rebecca Newton, organizational psychologist and CEO of Coach Advisor, discuss the impact of women in positions of leadership and on boards. Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. If you could see one change in businesses, organisations, in relation to women and getting women into leadership roles on boards in the executive, what would it be? It would be healthier cultures because it is not enough just to have the women in the positions at all layers of leadership. We want to see that. You know, a lot of my client organizations have goals for 2030 of 50% women in leadership positions across the business. I'm concerned where they don't have clear strategies for how they're going to achieve that. And it needs to coincide. So I think that's the the right thing to do is to have goals, um, to have strategies for how you're going to achieve those goals. And it has to coincide with What kind of culture changes do we need to make to leadership teams and to the organization as a whole 
in order to make sure that we see the positive returns of having women in leadership positions and that those women in leadership positions have a positive experience, that they feel that they are able to contribute and bring their best self to the organization, to those roles, to the meetings. Um, and to question why hasn't that happened before is probably a good way of, of looking at that if we're just doing it because we know that we need to now. Um, so I would say the biggest change that I would like to see is to make sure that there is alignment around healthy teams and healthy cultures, not just the number of women in these positions. The Mishkan Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishkan.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and hear this very program again with Ravinda by popping Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. If you have a smart speaker, you can ask it to play Jazz Shapers. They're very obliging now. And there you will find many of our recent shows. But back to today, it's Ravinda Bogle, chef, author and founder of Chaconi, a London restaurant celebrating mixed heritage cooking. That's what it says here. Um, without those people nudging you, without those people giving you the self-belief, do you think we would be here now talking about Giacconi? I don't, actually, I don't. I think that um, it did take other people to tell me I didn't have the self-belief, you know. Do you have it now? I have to pinch myself often. I do, you know, I do, and I, I know what I'm capable of, but... I'm I'm very lucky. I have a very supportive husband who really believes and has enabled a lot of what I do. You know, he just really believes in everything, my vision that I see, and he just makes it makes it possible. I think that's really really important. Um, you know, and then I have just wonderful, a really wonderful team. I mean, I can't tell you, especially in this period of you know lockdown and COVID the dignity and the grace that the team at Giacconi have shown has just been incredible. Um, and the belief in what we do as well has, has just has increased, in, if anything. Mm. And I think I'm very lucky to have that. And then just the, the the guests that we get in. You know, I love being in Marylebone. It's a neighborhood. It's a community. And we get the same people in over and over again. We've made friends with people. You know, um, I always wanted to open a place where we had lots of regulars where we knew the names of people, where we you know, knew what their dogs were called, where they would go on holiday. And I think that's allowed us to offer a really kind of bespoke service at, at Giacconi. We know how people like their gin and tonic fix. We know where they like to sit, what their sort of pet peeves are, what they love, you know, all of that. And I love that interplay between you know, us and the people visiting us, because that's just building a community. And it, it is about community spirit. And we've seen that. We're so lucky that we've seen so much of that over this period where the community really has come out. In and I want to talk about the work that you've done, the delivering, I believe there's meals for NHS and the homeless through the Sikh charity, Nishkam Swat, yes. which I wanna, I'll, I'll come to in a moment. But just on the creation of the restaurant back in 2016, I think yeah. it was, what was that like? I mean, you talked about, I think you said something about giving birth to ideas or the next phase. Creating a restaurant, being in the restaurant business now in COVID is another thing. But even pre-COVID, being a restaurateur is a tough gig. Yeah. How have you coped? 
before COVID and then we'll come to COVID yeah, after. It's, it's been a huge, steep learning curve, you know, a kind of real baptism of fire. I'm not a businesswoman naturally. You know, I've had to learn how to read a P&L and do all of that. I went into it blind, really. I went into it learning on the job. But what I think has helped me through is I've stood by my values. I've known what my values are and I've been able to eventually speak about them loudly and proudly. And in doing that, I've managed to attract the kind of people who also believe in those things to come and work with me. And that, I think, has been the making of Chikoni. And that that took time. That didn't happen overnight. It's taken some time to do that. Um, but it was it was really interesting. And, you know, being a brown girl, setting up a restaurant with a foreign name, people kind of come in, they think it's going to be Indian food, even to educate people about what our food is about, to be able to describe what I do is difficult. I can't say I cook Indian food or Chinese food or Italian food. It's it's very, very complex food. And it's very kind of um, personal to me and my journey. Um and and so in a way that was difficult at the beginning but i think 3 years in almost 4 years now we've just turned 4 it's it's finally getting out there and i think the book as well is really helping push that message the the idea of proudly inauthentic the idea of being an immigrant and how vast and diverse those borders that you cross are how each one of those borders that you um cross impresses upon you some knowledge some technique some wisdom how when you come to a country you are surrounded by mini economies of other immigrants that you shop at that you eat at that show you hospitality and how that affects your cuisine how you learn to adapt as an immigrant how your recipes are like stories with no endings because you're constantly on the move things are constantly changing and i think that's the wonder of creating a new cuisine and i think certainly for me coming here everything looked and felt so barren you know i'd come from a place where there were guava trees in the garden like this amazing colossal ever blue sky and then suddenly you're in this very haggard very kind of urban landscape um with nothing that smells familiar and everything seems very barren and I think it's only when you start to settle that you begin to preserve and become very precious about your heritage but start to overlay it with the influence of your new land whatever that might be and I think lucky me coming to a place like Britain where there is so much diversity so many stories so many narratives so many traditions and I'm able to be like a magpie and and take from them all the menu itself to just talk briefly about that so um, I like food and I like diversity of food. Uh, prawn toast scotch egg I yeah. scribbled when I was looking. I haven't been to your restaurant yet, but I am coming. And um, I'm definitely doing it. And then under the, the sweets, which are called tamu tamu, yeah. which in which language is that? Swahili. Swahili, thank you. Uh, I, I did pick out, which is what I'm having when I come, is the caramelized apricot and orange blossom roulade. These are crazy inventions, and I'm going to call them inventions. Where do they come from? Is it partly what you've experienced from other people? Is it partly reading? Is it partly just because? 
I think it comes from a lot of things. It comes from travel. It comes from thinking. It comes from, you know, reading from stories. It, that inspiration can come from many places. The Pronto Scotch Egg, in particular, I think really sums up what we do because we've taken two perennial favorites. Everyone knows what a Scotch Egg is, a British Scotch Egg. You've taken a, we've taken a Chinese prawn toast and we've put them together and we think we've created something that's better than the sum of its parts. And I think we're making quite a political statement there mm. about what happens when cultures come together. Well, I wanted to ask you about this. It feels like you work in, in, the, in the margins between cultures and people often talk about creativity being about where things clash and then they mesh, not just in... That's in, where the light is. That is where the light is, as you said, the air and the light that you felt, that is where the light is. Would you be... Are you happy in that place? Is that the best place for you creatively, whether you're writing or serving someone or creating a new dish? Is that is that it for you? Is that nirvana? That is for me. I'm fascinated by people's stories of immigration and travel and adaptation we have a dish on the menu currently, which uh, there's a recipe in the book, um, which is inspired by a fascinating documentary I saw um, some years ago. And it's it's called Paneer Nudi, and it's served with sag. And it was this, this documentary was about these um, Italians and how they were on their knees because they couldn't get the workforce to work on the dairy farms. So cheese production was at an all-time low. You know, no one, no young people wanted to do those hours for that little margin, all of that. So they started an immigrant program where they started getting um, North Indian farmers from Punjab to come to Italy to to work on the dairy farms because they're known for being experts at, at dealing with livestock. And so these people started, you know, settling there, getting married, having children there. And I was just fascinated by that. And I thought, what does that taste like when those cultures collide, when they integrate? What does that become? So this dish is like a love letter to those Punjabi immigrants that have settled in Italy because we make paneer, which is an Indian fresh cottage cheese, and we mix it with Parmesan and we make the most impossibly light nudie which are like pasta without the wrapper so the the filling of pastas are made purely of cheese um, which we boil and then pan fry and then we serve with a sag a north indian spinach sauce made with sorrel british sorrel spinach kale cavallo nero italian greens preserved lemon pine nuts and lots more parmesan and it is just delicious <laughs> Stay with me to find out more about delicious, crazy dishes. I mean, who could have put that together apart from my business show today, Ravinder Bogle, uh, the founder of Giacconi and the author of the book that you can hear me tapping. Uh, my final chat's come out with her very shortly. Plus, we'll be playing a track from Mr. Bobby Womack. That's in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Ravinda Bogle is my business shaper just for a few more minutes. We've been talking about all sorts of things, cultures colliding, which I, I love you. I just love the way you express things. It's obviously lucky because you're a writer. <laughs> um, I want to talk about your values a bit. And you mentioned the COVID-19 thing, which we're still obviously in, in the thick of. Yeah. Um, I understand that you, your team cooked a number of meals for the NHS staff and for the homeless. This charity I mentioned, the Sikh charity, Nishkam, the Southwest London branch of it. I looked up something because in my research, I like to, to noodle around and there were these phrases and I thought they were lovely about what under, underpins the Nishkam ethos. 
This Kirat Karni, Earning an Honest Living, was one of their, yeah. their pieces. And I'm going to say it incorrectly, but I'm going to try it anyway. I think it's Vand K. Shako. Yeah. Is that right? Good few. Van Kechako. Uh, much nicer. And as you know, I've got eight words of Hindi, and that isn't Hindi. That's probably something else. <laughs> probably, what is that? Is that Punjabi? Punjabi, It is yeah. Punjabi. Good. And that's all about, um, as I understand it, about giving and yeah. about, you know, literally sharing everything you've got with people, resources, love, whatever. Is that ethos a part of you anyway? And therefore, was it very natural to pivot towards giving food? Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm not a staunch Sikh or anything like that, but I grew up in a Sikh household. And my grandfather was orthodox, turban-wearing Sikh, and he really lived by those values. And I think it's just deeply entrenched in my psyche. And, you know, when, when COVID happened, it wasn't so much, it didn't feel like, okay, I'm doing something for charity, it felt like it was necessary. It felt like it was part of me. And even in the way we do our hospitality, I always say to my team, look, you have two, two and a half hours with, with someone. It's a privilege. You don't know what someone's going through in their life. And you have a privilege to do something that's so rare because this business is transformative and you see it instantly. It's like instant gratification. And I see that often, particularly in Marylebone, you know, people can be quite sort of uptight. They come in, they've not had a good day. And you put good hospitality, good wine and good food in front of them and you see them unfurl and it's a physical unfurling. You see it happen. And that is the joy of what we do. And that is the difference between service and hospitality. You know, service is about the technical. We should get that right all of the time. Polished cutlery, warm room, you know, those things you can, you can do. Hospitality is about how you make people feel. And that is what I'm interested in. That's what sort of fires my oven. It's the idea of transforming people's days through cooking. So yeah, with the, the whole, um, cooking during COVID, actually it wasn't my team because they couldn't come in, you know, because I just didn't want them risking themselves on public transport. So it was just me and my husband. We'd drive in and we just felt strongly that we had a perfectly good kitchen that wasn't in, you know, we weren't able to use it. So we should use it to do something good. So initially it happened that a friend of mine is a doctor at King's College Hospital and his wife had started this um, thing called the wellness box and they were just gathering things like toothpaste and hand creams, things like that. So I just called her up and said, do you think they'd like some hot meals? And she was like, wow, well, yeah, because, you know, they're just not even eating. They're not getting the time. So that would mean a lot. So we just started going in twice a week and cooking for them. And then once they were stable, I'd come across the work of Nishkam Swat and I just, you know, really related to their philosophy, obviously being brought up in the Sikh faith. But just also just they're such lovely, inspiring people and they have so much impact. And it was one man's dream and everyone told him it was impossible and he just made it happen. And they've got something like 27 or 30 locations now across the UK it's incredible. And they do it rain or shine. We're still cooking for them. They came and picked up, I think it was last Friday, and it was pouring with rain and they were off to Camden, you know, all very chipper smiles on their faces. And I mean, I like having people like that around because it reminds you to do better. <laughs> it's been great talking to you.
Good luck with the new book. It is beautifully designed. I believe your husband may have had a hand in this, as you said. He did. You said um, he helps you bring to life your vision. Well, he certainly has, I think, because if that was in your head, and it's a beautiful cover, I urge you to go and have a look at it. It's called Giacconi, Proudly Inauthentic Recipes from an Immigrant Kitchen, and there's some brilliant stories in there, unexpected ones too. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you for having me. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? It's called If I Can't Have You, and it's by Etta James and Harvey Fuku. Is that how you Fuk- say it? I think we'll say that. Fuqua or something. Fuqua? Fuqua there. Fuqua, will, Fuqua something Fuqua. like we'll that. We'll get away with that. Um, but I love that song. It was played as we walked out after our registry wedding, um, and it's a very triumphant song, and I love it. Etta James and Harvey Fuqua, I hope I said that properly, If I Can't Have You, the song choice of my business shaper today, Ravinda Bogle. She talked about that moment where life opened up having read Nigella Lawson's book, The Air and the Lights Came In. She talked about standing by her values and that has stood her in fantastic stead all the way through her various multiple different careers. And really importantly, she referred to recipes as stories that never end, they just keep changing. A lovely way of thinking about food. Really good stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a fabulous weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash Jazz Shapers.